Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Hello, folks, and welcome back to another edition of Compound Interests with me, John Najarian, and I am delighted to have one of the most prolific authors on trading that there ever has been. Um, Jack Schwager, folks, uh, the first Market Wizards book that I saw was and read was amazing. And then he follows it up with the new Market Wizards, Hedge Fund Wizards, Technical Analysis Wizards. <laughs> I mean, uh, and, and I'm not poking fun at you, Jack. You have done a fabulous job. In fact, uh, I, I guess to a certain extent, CNBC should be paying you royalties um, for their programs because what you did was you highlighted interesting personalities in professional trading of all sorts, Forex, stocks, options, futures, and you made it mainstream. And as you did that, uh, the personalities of these people come out in your writing and now in your interviews and podcasts. Um, and by the way, folks, Jack's latest book is Unknown Market Wizards. Um, and I'm sure this one is also great, Jack. I have to say I haven't read that one yet, but it's already uh, on its way to me from Apple, uh, from Amazon. And it's just a pleasure to have you here, Jack. Jack Schwager, folks, thank you for coming. Hey, thank you for that introduction, appreciate it. Well, um, it's all true, Jack. I mean, I, uh, like I say, I started trading on the floor of the Chicago Board Option Exchange. I know you're a trader. Um, I know that you had uh, a real interest in um, not just some of the methodology, um, because people were out there trying to write books about the turtles um, and, uh, you know, these various groups, CRT and things like that, O'Connor, um, and you really got drilled down right to the trader uh, that was doing that portfolio management or that pit trading, whatever it might have been. So maybe if you could tell the, the listeners and viewers, how did you exactly get started in doing that? How did you convince these generally very private people to open up and talk to you about this? Yeah, it's not easy always. It's gotten, I guess, a little easier, you know, because as I've written more of these books, a lot of people, a lot of traders I end up interviewing actually read, you know, one or more of the books when they were sort of getting started and, and it was influential. I mean, a num number of traders have told me, you know, my books got them into the business. Uh, so, so that makes it easier now. When I first started, I had the, I had a luck was, it was a big, had a big factor because my first job on Wall Street was as a research analyst, a futures research analyst. And the, per the person I was replacing was a fellow by the name of Michael Marcus. Marcus was going, leaving his research job to become a trader. Uh, Marcus then went on and I, we met when I was, when he was clearing out his desk and I was coming in. And then he was in New York for a couple of years and we got together for lunch every, you know, every few weeks or whatever. So we, we did have that relationship. Then he went off to the West Coast and uh, he, uh, he traded for Commodities Corp, which back in the day was, was like, a, <laughs> like an incubator, uh, of great trading talent. And uh, Michael was probably their best trader ever, I think. Uh, he was unknown to everybody, you know, to the world. I don't think he ever did any interviews, very shy guy. 
He actually didn't even want to do, even though we were friends, he didn't even want to do this interview because he's such a quiet, such a reclusive, almost reclusive person, yeah? Yeah. And uh, so there was a, we both knew someone who worked for more, you know, bacon cap, uh, you know, uh, um, and uh, more capital. And she convinced him to do it. And so it was like, she gave that extra last push. So he did, he, he agreed. And so and then I interviewed him and I know, but through him all, I knew I was also in with Commodities Corp through Michael for about a year, uh, not as a trader, but as a research person. And Michael hired Bruce Kovner. <laughs> so, you know, for a time they traded together in the same office, probably the most talented duo of traders ever in one office. <laughs> and, um, you know, so Bruce agreed to do it. Now, Bruce has not given any other interviews that I know of. And he told me flat out, the only reason I'm doing this interview, uh, and he, he's one of these people who wouldn't do any interviews, he said is because there's a lot of stuff about me appearing in the press and a lot of it's wrong and I want one accurate record. And he kind of trusted me to do that. Um, so I, I so there's two that I knew. Michael, after I spent the, the day with him, you know, it was like, well, actually was, I was there for a couple of days. That is, he was living in Malibu at the time. And, but, you know, as I came to late one day and then the next morning we began and through the, I, you know, I was interviewing the whole day, you know, everywhere, walking on the beach, or, you know, whatever. And at the end we were, we were having dinner and I think I probably still had the tape recorder running. And, uh, you know, he has a, he had a cook, of course, and cooked, you know, wonderful dinner. But after dinner, he kind of pushes back the uh, chair and he says, you know, this, is, this has kind of been a cathartic experience. And even though he was reluctant to do it, he kind of felt unburdened because in that chapter, he goes through his career, which was laden with failure in the beginning. And I think he felt, and he told me he was very honest. I love some of these interviews I've done. People have been blatantly honest and he's one of them. And uh, I mean, if you read the chapter, if you read the chapter, you'll see what I mean. Um, and, and so I think he felt unburdened in a way to have gotten all this out. And so he said, you know, you should interview, you should interview at Sakoda. He gets on the phone, introduces me to Ed, uh, Ed is in Lake Tahoe at the time, and I was planning, I had a flight scheduled to go back to New York, but, you know, uh, you know, I said, you know, and I can kind of do it, we'll only have a few hours, you know, um, but, uh, you know, but I think that's enough, you know, if we're really focused. Well, I didn't know Ed, you know, <laughs> so a few hours with Ed, it just doesn't work. So I ended there spending the night, you know, and of course I had to change my, uh, you know, and we talked late into the night, so uh, I got that interview. So there's three of them right away. Um, I forgot how I got Marty Schwartz. Uh, I don't remember, but I think he came through some other recommendation. And uh, then somebody like Jim Rogers, I knew he taught a business course in, in Columbia. And I had written this uh, tome called The Complete Guide to the Futures Market, which was like a 750, 800 page book on analysis of the markets. I, I wrote him a letter saying, look, here's what I've done. I'm not a journalist. I'm just, you know, kind of want to approach this from a more of a, you know, trader stand perspective. And he agreed to do it. And so, you know, there's a bunch of people writing the first book and then I got others, but uh, that that's sort of how it went. Oh yeah. Well, um, I have found that uh, uh, it's both cathartic for me when I talk to groups uh, of investors that want to become more active traders. 
Um, and it is cathartic. Uh, that's one of the best words to describe it, Jack, yeah. because then you're opening up and you're sort of thinking a little more deeply about, well, when it's easy to say you got to take your losses and then, you know, take profits uh, and you've got to be able to do both. But until people have really lived that, it's, it's not the same. It's just like yeah. if you watch movies of military folks and you've never been in the military, we can live vicariously through them, but you haven't felt that, you know, that gut wrenching and all the rest that goes with, you know, the, the bad side of trading. Um, but my gosh, when I look at the, the roster of people you've talked to, and I, I, I do have to ask you this one question, sure. and uh, it, it's not meant, this is, this is first of all, not, nothing I do here is gotcha, um, but That's do you ever fine. have to vet these guys? Because yeah. you've got a guy, this Jason Shapiro, for instance, sounds like a heck of a trader, um, allegedly took 2,500 to 50 or 60 million bucks, maybe more than that. Um, yeah, I think he's almost, double, yeah, he's yeah. almost doubled it this year. So um, yeah, I mean, look, that's a, that's a great story. About a year before I started, you know, before I even decided to do, you know, before I decided to do the book, at least six or nine months before, I get this email from this fellow and he tells me that he made, you know, he started out a few thousand, he made 50 million and it's sort of like an interesting story. And I'm say first thought is, yeah, sure, you know, but, you know, but maybe, you know, I mean, I've seen a lot of incredible records, right? So it's not impossible. So um, I wrote him back. I said, well, that's fascinating, but, you know, I'm really not planning to do another market with this book. And I wasn't at the time, but then things evolved and I did decide to do this unknown market wizards. So I wrote him back. I said, okay, I'm doing a book. And if you can send me, you know, evidence. So I literally got every monthly statement from him, you know, wow. every monthly statement. So, um, uh, and you know, I mean, I mean, unless he's an expert forger can, can forge uh, 15 years of monthly statements, uh, you know, to, uh, to look like the real thing, you know, uh, uh, I mean, so, you know, but he's real, he's real. He's definitely real. Uh, so yeah, I have to, because I mean, Frankly, if I read this, if I read this book here, you know, this uh, unknown market wizards, uh, you know, it wasn't my book, and I read it, and it, and I would be extremely skeptical. I say, yeah, three hundred percent a year, twelve years. Give me a break. In these markets, who the hell can do three hundred percent a year, twelve years in a row? I mean, on average, average compounded. I mean, he had one year where he made over three thousand percent, so that kind of pulled it up. Otherwise, you probably, <laughs> otherwise you probably would only have been somewhere between one hundred and two hundred percent. But you know. These these records are just kind of unbelievable. Uh, you know, I got a Sortino ratio. I don't like the sharp ratio, but you got a, one of the guys had a Sortino ratio over twenty. You know, I mean, just I mean, and that that's more impressive than a sharp ratio of twenty, which I'm oh, yeah. sure you know. And for listeners who don't understand that, is because the Sortino kind of doesn't penalize for it's all all based on it penalizes losses, but it doesn't penalize gains. So when you get somebody like a number of traders in this book, which have huge gains, but still manage to control their losses, you get enormous Sortinos and the Sortino will be much greater than the Sharp, if calculated correctly, which nobody else, which I don't even say nobody else. I think most people or almost every, everybody I see calculates it wrong. It needs to be, the, the way people are, are calculating it, it's overstated by the square root of two. Um, it's, it's a technical point that I don't want to get into it, but you know, uh, 
if you do divide by the square root of two, then you can compare Sortino's and Sharp's. And when the Sortino is higher, much higher, you can tell, hey, this is a trader which has a big right tail, wins much bigger than the losses. Now, now Jack, I think a lot of people that are gonna be both buying your books and they should buy these books, folks. There are great books. Um, um, you, you will find yourself highlighting parts of each chapter because some of them will speak directly to you um, and some of them will be just uh, cautionary tales in some regard. Um, but uh, what you'll find in these books uh, is that there was no one single way that these traders made money. Now they may have had commonality in certain areas, but if you could, Jack, the, the best of the best that you spoke with, and now that you've got this um, arm that sees traders as well, what would you look for as far as traits that a, you think a trader really needs to have? Not the methodology, but the right. traits that that trader needs to have to be successful. Yeah, John, you've stated it perfectly uh, because it's exactly that. It's not the methodology because the methodologies are all over the map. I mean, uh, you know, everything you can think of, pure technical, pure fundamental, mix of technical fundamental. In this book, somebody who's neither technical or fundamental, uh, you know, <laughs> short-term, long-term, you know, uh, currency traders, stock traders, both trading both, uh, you know, it's just like a complete mix of different approaches, right? Um, and, and almost, I mean, if you took all the traders and all the market wizards books, you find very few that are kind of similar. In this book, there are a couple that are similar because they came through the same prop shops and they do have some similarities, although they evolve also to, to, to be different, but not as different as typical. But as you said, there are commonalities and those commonalities have nothing to do with methodology. Uh, it's a point to be stressed. What they have to do with, uh, so what are some of the big commonalities? The, the big commonalities are first and foremost, risk management. Um, you know, uh, almost every trader I interview pays enormous attention to, to risk management. They'll tell you that it's more responsible for the success than their methodology, uh, but it is critical. It is critical, okay? It, it comes up, up again and again and again. Uh, Having the discipline to, to uh, stick with risk management and to stick with a methodology that's working, you know, that, that discipline, which, which is, involves a lot of things. It means you don't take trades that are not part of your methodology. It means you don't take, you know, gut trades just because you, you don't take trades because you're bored. You don't decide to give the market more room you know, or what we call it in my day, cancel of close stop orders. Um, yeah. You know, you don't do all these things. You don't, you don't lose money in the market, take a big loss in the market, say, I'm going to get it back from that market, which is, you know, the revenge trade, which is all these human emotion things, which, which just are all detrimental. And so you need the discipline to kind of shut that out, to, to, to not fall for that. Um, you need, well, you need an edge, okay? Yeah, so, well, that's yeah. where I was going too, because I know that's one of these things that you always, you know, say you've got to know that what your edge is. Mine is, for instance, um, unusual option activity. That's my edge. Um, like you said, Warren Buffett says he's going to buy something that he can hold for 10 years if the market shuts down. He's that competent of the management team 
and the, the space that that business is in. But, you know, there are a whole bunch of other edges that people have, uh, whether they're quick twitch traders or buy and hold. So how, how, do, you, uh, how do you discover what your edge is for, well, you, a, for a trader? Yeah, it's going to be different for everybody. But I would want to say one more thing about, about the importance of an edge. It's if you don't have an edge, then you're, you're, the, you're the player at the roulette wheel, not the casino. And you can't win in trading if you're the player instead of the casino. So you have to be the casino. And the casino in, in most games, you know, with exceptions like, uh, uh, like slot machines, which are, you know, which are the worst of all. But you know, for a game like blackjack or well, roulette, it's a few percent, but the edges aren't huge. So if a tr trader doesn't have to have an enormous edge to do quite well, but they need to have the edge. The expected gain has to be greater than 50%. And so how do you get that? Well, every trader evolves to discover their own edge. Uh, you know, in this book, uh, you know, you've got, you know, you got Peter Brand, whose edge is to, you know, decade generations worth of experience with charts and, and pinpointing points where he can take a position and have a reasonable shot to get a, a good swing uh, up or down and be able to do that with a meaningful stop that's relatively close. That's what his edge is. Um, if you somebody like Jason Shapiro, who's a contrarian, I mean, a pure contrarian, his edge is always being on the opposite side of, the, of what has been a major trend. But Ty, he, uses, uh, he uses the CFTC Commitment of Traders uh, reports, but he also uses market behavior. So what he's trying to do, he's trying to you know, get, okay, we're in a zone now where this market is overbought. Doesn't mean you go, you go short because, you know, your market can keep you being over, but then he waits for market action that confirms it or other people that he sees that he knows, you know, do the wrong thing, confirming it. That's the, yeah, things like that. So he combines that. We're always with risk management. Otherwise you can get carried out being a contrarian, obviously. Uh, you've got people, uh, a, a few of the traders in the book are event, event traders. So they'll, they'll, they'll really prepare for stuff like central bank announcements and other, other types of economic events and are, know exactly what they're gonna do depending on what number comes out, depending how the initial response is and that's their edge. So everybody develops their, and you nor I can tell anybody what their edge is. Uh, in fact, in my case, you know, and I don't have much of an edge. I mean, uh, I'm just a small edge because I'm not a very good trader, but whatever edge I have is because I learned risk management through doing the books. And, um, and maybe, maybe my, chart, my chart approach to this has, has a little bit of an edge, you know, tiny, you know, I'm not a good trader, but that's my, my edge is just having a little bit of an edge through the charts, but using risk management. So if I've got any edge, that's what it is. But I'm not a good example because I'm not a market wizard. But everybody has to discover, you know, what their edge is, and for everybody, it's going to be different. Um, how about the psychology of it, Jack? Um, you know, mentally, how you, both how you deal with success, uh, because that can screw up and has screwed up a ton of traders, obviously, um, and not just buying a new Ferrari or something like that, but you know. Uh, basically thinking it's going to go on forever the same way it is right now. It's one of the reasons, Jack, that when I traded actively on the floor, I never really took more than four days off 
because I didn't want to miss it. Um, and I don't mean miss it from a junkie standpoint, like I'm addicted to it, but I didn't want to, I, I knew at some point it would stop. And I wanted to be there to take as much as I could um, rather than saying, well, yeah, I've done really well. I think I could sort of lay back and go to a beach. One of the things that I really worried about Jack was that I would get too civilized um, because trading, especially floor trading folk um, is so different than uh, investing and trading from upstairs uh, because you're in a pit, sweaty, smelly pit with a bunch of you know, traders that are you know, willing to do almost anything to make that buck, even though they're extremely trustworthy, uh, I think, you know, some of the most trustworthy people I know, Jack, I mean, I know guys that um, wrote me half a million or a million dollar checks, and I did the same for them um, if they were in trouble. Um, and with without all the lawyers, without all the other stuff, just because your word was your bond. Um, but uh, on the other hand, you had to have that killer instinct in the pit, I think, to uh, really flourish, at least flourish in the pit. Didn't mean you needed to be, you know, a bad person, but it mean it meant for me and for my brother Pete, uh, just like Carl Icahn said, if you want a friend, get a dog. Uh, you know, when he was fighting with Einhorn about that, uh, you know, that trade in uh, herbal life, and he said, "Hey, you want a friend? Go get a dog." Or was that Ackman? I forget now. But I mean, th those are classic, uh, you know, Carl Iconisms. But I thought it was all very true that you had to be able to deal with the winning as well as the losing. And you've seen lots of examples of both with the people you interviewed. Right. Yeah. I mean, so psychology and uh, and particularly in this book, I mean, it comes up in every book. Uh, you know, when I wrote the original Mark Wizards book, I thought I was going to be writing a book about markets and trading, you know, in retrospect, it's probably more of a book about psychology than it is yes. you know, markets and trading. And that's kind of, that kind of repeated, but it was good that I went in, you know, I mean, I, I went with where the material was and uh, I didn't necessarily know what it was going to be. And, and I took what I thought was the most important stuff, which often happened to be the psychological stuff. So, yeah, and it comes up maybe more in unknown market wizards than in any of the books where, I mean, you have one trader who, will prepare for a trade, like a, he's one of the event traders I mentioned, like a war, you know, like a war, like a professional athlete. And he will, uh, he'll meditate, he'll do breath work. And he's, he's before this, he's done all this research. So he knows he's, he's got his whole plan on how he's going to trade this event. And then he'll get himself into what he calls a, a deep now state. And he's totally focused on that, that the world doesn't exist outside of that screen. And he knows exactly what he's going to do. And if he puts a position on, it's going to be in size. And he knows because these are, in fact, I call that chapter, I think it's called uh, Unicorn, uh, it's Unicorn Trader or something like, not the Unicorn Trader, but uh, Unicorn Sniper, the Unicorn Sniper, because that's the way he trades. He's got a few big trades he's going to get in the air and he's going to really hit them hard and he's going to be better prepared than anybody else in the world on that trade, literally, I think, you know. And because uh, he doesn't focus on doing a million trades. In fact, one of his points is that, you could, that those other trades are distractions. You really want to focus on the, the really good opportunities. So he, when he has one of those, he gets into this mental state where he's just totally there. Uh, and if he's wrong, he knows he has the discipline to get immediately out because the size he's in, 
if he's if he caught if he's figured it out wrong, the market isn't behaving the way he thought it would. He has to get out right away because he can, he'll get carried out. So he's he's got an approach. He can never be he can never let his discipline lax even one time. But it's all psych, you know, it's his mindset, it's his discipline, and you know, psychology is super critical. Yeah, it does a ton of research, but it, and it's not only you know, the another trader keeps literally a, a, an Excel sheet every day. He's got a bunch of different columns, you know, for things which might be emotional types of things, like you know, and he checks off. Like he'll have like just to give an example. He has one column called the sugar trade. The sugar trade is a trade you take because you kind of just want to take it, but you really have a good reason to take it. So if he does, that's a mistake. Even if it works out, it's a mistake because that's not his that's not his methodology. So if he does one of those, he'll check it off, and he can see at the end of the week where where has he emotionally is he emotionally weak or emotionally failing so he can focus on that. So he literally does it with an Excel spreadsheet. Also keeps daily notes on his emotions. So uh, you know, psychology is super important. You got to know where your weaknesses are. You got to avoid those. Uh, Every trade, I probably every trader has certain types of things they, they tend to do wrong or get suckered into doing. You know, by their, when I say suckered, I mean by their emotions, right? Our emotions are always driving us to do things that are not good, good for the bottom line. They may feel good, you know, may give you a bit of excitement, it may take you away the boredom or whatever, um, but, they're not, but they're not what you should be doing. And so, um, so controlling that is really critical. Uh, Jack, what about uh, one of my favorite uh, interviews that you did was with, I think, Paul Tudor Jones. Uh, now, obviously legend, uh, but a living legend, um, much like uh, Stevie Cohen, who's just buying the Mets now with some pocket change, I guess. Um, you know, when, whenever he's not buying, a, a, you know, a shark in formaldehyde, he's looking yeah, that, at that, baseball. That, to that one, but, you know, I guess I just... I just don't get modern art. <laughs> no, I don't get it either. But, you know, he'll probably make money on it, but I just wouldn't want it in my house. Yeah, but I've met Stevie, um, have talked to him a number of times. Good man. Um, but Paul Tudor Jones, um, here's a guy, coffee, sugar, cotton, I think, um, you know, were more or less. Yeah, I think it was, was it Louis? His early Trump? days, his early days, particularly cotton. Because he came... He came from a family, you know, that uh, that had, you know, was an kind one of the main merchants, I believe, you know, or at least I think his uncle or whatever. I don't remember. You know, it's been thirty years since I did the interview, um, but he had. Uh, but I think he talks about Tullis, who was a you know famous cotton merchant, uh, about what he learned from him and how he sat in his office uh, in New Orleans, I believe, um, and he would have a day where he'd have like a, take a big loss. And then he had visitors and the visitors came and he said, you couldn't tell that he had a losing day. You know, that, that, that really impressed him and stuck with him, you know? And, and so, yeah, so that was one of the main markets. He also had his worst trade ever by, by 10,000 miles was a, was a cotton trade. Almost knocked him out of the business, one trade. And that's in that interview, you know? It's also the trade that, that brought him the religion of risk management. It, 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 he came about as close to getting knocked out of the of being a trader as you could. Uh, he, but he, which happens, which happens to so many of the traders I've interviewed. You know, uh, in this book I have one who actually quit 
finally quit for a couple, you know, but then a few months started again. Actually, two. Come think of two traders who did that. So I got two traders in this book who quit trading and then came back to it again. Even though they were very successful, but they hit a period where things were not going right. It was too demoralizing. They just they couldn't take it anymore. They stopped. And yeah, yeah in one case, it was, a, it was an 11-year hiatus, I think. In another case, it was like a, a three three month hiatus, yeah. Wow, 11 years, that's forever. Um, when, uh, when, when we talk, my brother Pete and I, Jack, are partners together in this firm, uh, Market Rebellion. And when we do conferences and things like that, we got to get you out to one of those, by the way. Um, we'll talk to you about it offline. Yeah. But um, when we do these, uh, one of the things that we tell people is when it's not, when you're not uh, finding your groove, when you're not uh, hitting as many uh, hits as you need, because we all have losers. And I talk about that a lot. Uh, but people on Twitter, of course, come after me all the time, Jack because Twitter's a cesspool of people who, you know, have uh, nothing better to do. But they'll un universally, they'll say, why don't you talk more about your losses? And I'll say, because I'm not shitty at marketing. That's why. I mean, I will admit to losses, but do you really want to invest with the guy that's constantly telling you, well, I lost 20,000 on that trade, vaporized, I lost 50 over here or whatever, because that happens. Um, but I, don't, I, I never put a number, by the way, Jack, when I'm talking to our uh, traders or when I'm on CNBC, I never say, oh, yeah, that was a $100,000 winner. That was, you know, a $20,000 loser. Rarely, on, on rare occasions, I've said that about the losers, but I never talk about the winners as far as putting a number to it. I'll say I had a lot of that and it worked out, or I bought a lot of that and it didn't work out. Um, but when things aren't working out, we do, you know, maybe because Pete and I are sports guys, um, and you're obviously living in God's country out there, cross country skiing. You're a sports guy. Yeah, yeah, solo sports, solo sports. Yeah, not team staying sports. in good shape. Well, what, when when we say it's when it's not working, shorten up on the swing. So if if my hand is down at the end of the bat when we're playing softball, you know I'm going for a big hit. Might not work. But, uh, but because of the odds, people on bases here and there, there's only one out. If I can get it far enough into the outfield, we'll score at least two of them, you know, that kind of stuff. When we're doing that, then I'm swinging harder. Um, when things aren't working out in trading, we say same thing that you do in the major leagues if you're a baseball player, folks. You know, shorten up that, shorten up the swing. Don't come from as far back. You just need to make contact. You just need to make contact and get that feeling back. In, in your interviews, did you get that from any of the guys or gals that you've talked with about, you know, how to get that, how to get your swing back? Sure. You know, I, I, that question comes up in, in mo many interviews. I don't know if most interviews, but many interviews. And it's basically the question, you know, when things are, when everything you're doing is just going wrong, what do you do? You know, so it's like that, that's the question. And one of the answers, indeed, is your shortening up on the swing on the bat is a perfect analogy because the answer is you reduce your size. I still remember this like, you know, Randy McKay from the first, I think he was in the first Marco Wizards book, who also made a transition from floor trader to you know office trader. But he said when you know he's gone from this, he's gone from trading as much as 2,000 contracts, you know, in currencies to trading 10. 
you know, as, as he's, if his things are not working, he keeps on cutting his size and cutting his size. So at some point, given what is his size he was trading at, if you're trading 10 contracts, that's nothing, you know? So uh, another common answer is uh, just, maybe even more common is just stop trading. Just liquidate everything, take, take the afternoon off, take a week off, take a vacation, just, just get, just stop doing it. You know, the old cliche, if you're in a hole, don't keep digging. Uh, so if things are not going right, the market's telling you whatever your approach is, it's, it's just not going right now. So uh, plus you, it's a tendency that for people to get into this very negative cycle where they lose and then they beat themselves up for it and they have less confidence and more likely to lose again. So if you're in that type of cycle, the best thing you can do if you're not going to really, some people can't reduce, they're not trading large enough to reduce size maybe. Uh, but uh, the best thing you can do is just, like I say, liquidate everything. The markets will still be there and come back when you feel refreshed and, you know, and you're ready to go again and you think you, you're, you're going to win again and then start small. And when it's going, continue to build back to your normal size. So those are the, those are the basic answers that I get to that, to that type of question, which is, you know, you're, you're shortening up on the bat swing is a good analogy. Um, how about uh, you also use some of these analogies from the military, like, you know, fighting the last war when, when somebody is uh, uh, looking at their past performance um, and saying, okay, yeah, based on, I mean, there's nothing wrong with back testing. I got nothing against it. And there's nothing wrong with remembering how you made money last time a certain set of uh, circumstances presented themselves. Like for instance, um, volatility spiked uh, just two weeks before the election um, this year. And it was, we thought a great opportunity uh, to buy stocks rather than to get out of stocks. Because I guess like Jason Shapiro, Pete and I are sort of contrarian investors in that we view high volatility, Jack, as a time when the market's fearful, like Buffett says. Market's fearful, that's when I want to buy. Um, when the market's greedy, that's when I want to sell. So when the market's greedy, generally vol is really low. Um, now that doesn't mean I want to sell calls against my stocks. That means I want to get out of my stocks and get into call spreads or calls because they're cheap um, when the vol is low. When the vol swings and it's on the high end, like I say, that's when I'm saying, okay, there's blood in the streets. Apple's back to 106 bucks a share. I'm going to buy that stock. I'm going to buy this stock, that stock. And then as it rallies, I'm going to trade out of the stock and get into an option spread as the vol drops. And it doesn't always work as perfectly as it did this time, but that muscle memory from trading is that when we see spikes in vol, they don't stay there very long, generally. Generally, you know, yeah. we had a, a prolonged period of pretty high vol in uh, March. March and April, uh, you know, as we came into the pandemic this year. But having experience with that, we were always looking for, okay, where's the flush? Where's that, you know, time when you get that capitulation and people are just saying, I'm done, you know, and it happened at least once or twice in a big way when the market was down like 1800 Dow points or 170 S&Ps or whatever it was, those kinds of moves. And you've seen them, um, having that muscle memory of li living through it in the past is something you can draw from 
but like you say, you can't fight the last war. Um, you know, if, if you've got all your weapons built for fighting what worked in the last war, it might not be the right setup. Well, you, you basically use an approach as long as it's working. And if it's not working, it might be a temporary thing or it might be a more permanent thing. And, uh, you know, that's the difficult part. But you, we want you to phase where it's not working. You have to be a lot more cautious and you have to be open-minded and, uh, you know, and, and consider that maybe this is not, not going to work anymore. Um, there's, uh, there's one of the traders, the only systematic trader in, in this new book, um, sort of had developed basically trend-oriented systems. Uh, and he had multiple, I don't know if he had two, three, four, so it's just a few systems that he traded. And he's a, he came into trading because he's a software guy. So he had everything programmed. And so he could, you know, through his career, he's traded God knows how many systems and, and he's tested, you know, who knows how many more systems, but he can pull up any system and have the complete equity from when he first developed it to current day. So he made this major shift where these systems that were making money from in those initial years for, you know, consistently every year, just started losing money. And he, he had a hypothesis that they were just too slow, that the markets had speeded up, that now taking for what his were shorter term systems, taking the signals on a close was just too late. And he sort of revamped the systems to anticipate what the close was going to be and anticipate what the volume was going to be. So, uh, you know, based on the early, early trading, you know, projecting out and then would use that. And then he started making money again. But I said, well, out of curiosity, these, these systems that work so well that uh, you abandoned, how'd they do? And he pulls, pulls up the chart. And it's the most amazing thing I've ever seen. It's like a straight mountain chart up to a point in time. And then it starts going down and it hasn't stopped going down in eight years or 20, 10 years, however, I forget when, he, when it was he switched. It just from that point on, it just kept on going straight down to the current day. You would have lost money every year if you, if you kept trading it. Well, uh, it, it sounds like he made the right move then. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. And, but he, he not only made it, he made this type of move one, he made it in a chapter, you see, he made it multiple times. And so if he had stuck with his methodology at any point in time, he would have been wiped out. He would have been knocked out, wiped out, really. So it was only his flexibility to be able to say, okay, this isn't working. I gotta do, I gotta find a different approach. And that's how he that's how he he ended up, you know, with a with a good winning record. But uh, if he had stuck with his 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 systems at any points in time, multiple times, it would have worked out badly. Folks, uh, Jack's latest book is again Unknown Market Wizards. And uh, I, I want to give you a quick chance, Jack, uh, before we wind up to talk about Fund Cedar, sure. um, because this is a firm that, that uh, Jack is at least co-founder. Maybe you're the, the no, founder. Not, yeah, I'm, I'm, no, the, the head guy is Emmanuel Valari, whose idea it was, and who asked me to join him. And so, you know, so we are kind of co-founders, but he's, he's the CEO. He is the launcher. He's the one who has more direct, you know, Involvement of the firm, you know, I'm I'm a co-founder, but but he's he has a higher role. Um, so Fun Cedar was his idea, and he mm -hmm. popped it to me. I, I knew him because I was advising him and his company on a portfolio, you know, of, of CTAs, 
And so we were at a conference and uh, he, he says, Jack, I want to pop this out to you. You know, what do you think of this idea? And essentially the idea is, you know, what if there was a, a global uh, sort of place where any trader in the world could link their account and, you know, with, the, with their broker and the accounts would therefore be verified. And if they had trading skill, they could, they could demonstrate it through their track records coming direct from the broker. And so people who normally wouldn't have any chance of managing money would have an opportunity of being discovered, no matter where they were. I like it. In fact, four traders in this book came, came from, from Frontseer. But I'll think the most extreme case. Uh, this trader is a fellow in, who lives in the Czech Republic. His, his highest year of education was high school. He admits he wasn't even get very good grades in high school. Uh, went for a year of military service after high school, then had a 10-year career as a bellhop. Uh, seeing all these businessmen in, in Prague, reading the Wall Street Journal and thinking to themselves, boy, I'd like to live like that. You know, nice job. You just look at the paper and you, you know, you trade, you put in orders. And but anyway, I mean his first time he failed, but then the second time he hit upon a methodology, which has works, you know, for 15 years now. And um, so a trader, and he has like you know, really excellent. He, he compounds at somewhere in the 30% a year. Um, he trades large cap stocks. So, the, so the, the technique could be applied to much larger portfolio. He, he just basically, made, he keeps on living off his winning. So he's never growing, but he's not managing money. But a guy like that, even, even if he had a very, even if he had a, an approach, and I say an approach, his, his return risk is better than at least 99% of professional managers, you know, in terms of pure return risk. But he would never get a, in a million years, he wouldn't get anybody to pay attention to him. You know, Czech Republic, high school education, <laughs> talk about having the wrong pedigree, right? So, right. so that's the, uh, the idea for Sponsator was that people who have trading talent could get discovered. And so uh, Funseater.com is a platform for traders to ideally link their accounts to the site, if they're pro not every broker is linkable, but if the broker is linkable, and it has all sorts of analytics, so they can, you know, get all sorts of performance, you know, equity charts, uh, you know, all sorts of return risk measures. They can even do uh, technical analysis on their equity curve, you know, stuff like that. So that's there as a free site because our monetization uh, objective is not to charge traders linking to the site. It's the fine undiscovered trading talent that we can then, which we're now in talks with some large entities, I can't mention who they are. And, uh, uh, but any of those, uh, there's two, two really big entities, you know, big, big allocators, anybody would know who they are, almost me. But if we, assuming that we get a deal that goes through with one of them, at least one, maybe both, uh, then, you know, we don't want to re reinvent the wheel. It doesn't make sense. You've got these professional uh, allocate you know, operations that have all the software and manpower to execute the stuff. Doesn't make sense for us to try to form a fund or something like that. It's just too expensive as a startup. We can't do it. So we decided we're going to part with the, the game plan is to partner with uh, one or more large allocators. And then, you know, we, we would then get monetized monetization that way. So uh, anyway, that's fun Cedar. That's fun Cedar folks. Um, and for any of you who are, aspiring money managers, you should check out that site. Um, because again, just as Jack said, doesn't cost you anything 
um, but you link your brokerage account to it, they would track it. It produces graphs and everything else, I think, Jack. Yeah, so that you and, can see and, yeah, yeah underwater charts, yeah, a lot of nice, a lot of neat stuff. I basically designed it, I designed the analytics the way I wanted, you know, so on Ethereum, you, you build what you like, and if other people don't like it, that's too bad. I mean, yeah, but you know, you don't want to try to figure out what everybody wants. It's just better to do what you think is good. And uh, so I think it's a really good site that way. Um, oh, I should add, if you're if you're if your account can't be linked, we do have a, a facility where people can download a template and then essentially just cut and paste their their hopefully daily numbers. That's what we primarily use. But we also have the we also have the facility to just download to do that with monthly numbers, uh, cut and paste from Excel, and then upload it. And, and so people, can, but then those accounts show up as non-verified. So on the site, there's verified accounts and non-verified. Non non-verified doesn't necessarily mean people are pulling a fast one. Obviously, I mean I don't think I think most of them are legitimate, uh, if not the vast majority. But it means that presumably those people are with a broker where they couldn't link. So so they can still use the site. Beautiful. Jack Schwager, I can't thank you enough for being with us today, sir. Hey, um, I, I, I love the stories. Uh, next time we're going to talk about algorithmic trading and uh, how it's all programmers now instead of traders. Uh, yeah. But because I know you know about that side of the business very well, too. Yeah, a bit. Yeah. Thank you for joining us today, Jack. It's a pleasure. Unknown Market Wizards is the newest book, folks, but he's got, you know, half a dozen maybe maybe more books than that. The most prolific author in the trading space, Jack Schweiger. Thank you, Jack. Hey, thanks. Appreciate it. Very much so. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.